welcome to another episode of Lit These Days, presented by the Mark Literary Review. I'm Jessica. I'm Adam. And we're your hosts. And this week, as always, we're going to talk about what we finished reading, what we're currently reading, and then we're going to talk about books that we've outgrown. And then lastly, we have some fantasy recommendations. So stick around for that. And if you want us to recommend you a book, send me an email to themarkliteraryreview at gmail.com or a DM on Twitter at literarymark. And now I'm done plugging things. How are you at? <laughs> I'll, plug, How is life? I'll plug one more thing. We have submissions on our Discord too. So oh, check yes. that out in the yes, show yes, notes. Yes. Come talk to us. Come talk to us. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm doing well. I went a little nuts on, on Prime Day. What'd you get? Uh, you remember Prime Day a couple of years ago was like everyone made fun of it as like it's just a garage sale. <laughs> like they're just selling <laughs> junk. Uh, no, I bought, I spent way too much money on there. My biggest book related find though was I got the, the newest model of Kindle and it is wonderful. It's huge. My previous model was a seven um, and it's got like a gig of RAM in it, which was fine to start, but now it takes like 30 seconds to a minute to load a book, Mm -hmm. which I always just, as I'm waiting for a book to load, just imagine myself at a bookshelf slowly, just removing (laughs) a book from the shelf. It's really annoying. So Mm -hmm. I was, they were half off for Prime Day. Oh, nice. And they're, it's the, it's the 11th generation. They're huge. They have three gigs of RAM on them. And... I can now read comics on mm. them without having to do panel view. Panel view, like if I'm reading a comic on my phone, is you tap the panel and zooms in on the panel. Mm-hmm. And that's how you progress through the page so you can actually read it. The problem with that is some panels have to be switched depending on the size. Mm-hmm. So I, if I'm reading a comic like in public on my phone, I look crazy because I'm just shifting, my, <laughs> shifting from landscape back to the other view. So I don't need to do that anymore. I've been reading a lot on it, so... Very, very excited. I also, well, yesterday I spent a lot of money because I've been waiting to get a new microphone because my microphone sucks. So I got uh, like a a good quality mic or as you know already, Adam, we already talked about this, but yeah. um, And then I also went to Target and I got some clothes then I also went to Barnes and Noble. I went to Barnes and Noble for one book, <laughs> and as you know, when you go to That's Barnes impossible. and Noble, you leave with at least five. I got four. Yeah. So maybe I'll do a book okay. haul. I don't know. Should I do a book haul? Should I go get them? Yeah, you could do a book okay, haul. Let's do it. I need to stop buying books because <laughs> it's. Listen, I don't make that much money, and I need to just stop buying things. So digital's getting cheaper. You can just <laughs> switch over to that. This this is the book that I went into Barnes & Noble for. And it's a very pretty cover. It's called The Dating Plan by Sarah Desai. I think that's Hmm. how you say that name. Have not not heard of her. I have no idea what this book is about, but I've heard that everyone's raving about it. It's a contemporary romance novel. Obviously, Hmm. you can tell by the name. Um, (laughs) Yeah, I'll read the back, as I always do in my um, book hauls. So, Daisy Patel is a software engineer who understands lists and logic better than bosses and boyfriends. With her life all planned out and no interest in love, the one thing she can't give her family is the marriage they expect. Left with few options, she asks asks her childhood crush to be her decoy fiancé. Leah Murphy is a venture capitalist with something to prove. When he learns that his inheritance is contingent on being married, he realizes his best friend's little sister has the perfect solution to his problem. A marriage of convenience will get Daisy's matchmaking, matchmaking relatives off her back and fulfill the terms of his late grandfather's will. If only he hadn't broken her tender teenaged heart ten years ago. <laughs> Sparks fly when Daisy and Liam go on a series of dates to legitimize their fake relationship. Too late, they realize that very little is convenient about their arrangement. History and chemistry aren't about to follow the rules of this engagement. That sounds so good. I didn't even read the back. I just bought it. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, like, how could you not? That that cover is beautiful. It I seems know. like the, the contemporary romance novels have that style, that kind of art deco. I don't mm-hmm. know if that's the right term for it, but very simplified, well-chosen color palette style. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I don't own a book that looks, I, it's, it's such a pretty color, purple. And I think, so I'm going to get, I just moved into a new apartment in Minneapolis and we're going to get bookshelves, which I'm very excited about. I have a specific 
type of bookshelf that I want from Ikea. And I have just this this um, image in my mind that I'm just going to line up all my books and they're going to be so pretty and I'm going to have plants on the bookshelves and then I'm going to turn out the prettiest books so that you can see them on the shelf. Ugh. It's going to be amazing. Nice. I'm excited. Very nice. Yeah. I've I've considered, they're kind of expensive though. I've considered getting those little display, uh, I don't know what they're called, but you stick the book on it so that the spine doesn't get all bent out of shape. A little easier to di- to display oh. them. Oh, okay, okay. Maybe I'll have to look into that. Okay, anyway. Because yeah, we always do that and it just, the spine gets all, if you leave it up for a long time, gets all bent out of shape. Oh, I did not know that. Thank you for telling yeah. me that. Because otherwise I would screw up my books. And my books are my prized possessions. So, <laughs> okay. Then I saw this book. It's called Mythos by oh. Stephen Fry. Yes. Do you know about this book? I know about Stephen Fry. You're oh. going to love that book. Oh, tell me about him. I don't know anything about him. You've probably seen him before. He's a comedian. Um, he used to have a comedy duo with uh, Hugh Laurie, the guy who plays House on TV. Oh. He's a very funny dude. And he has a book on poetry, which I've not read, um, but I, I've, I know people who have read it, and it's wonderful. It's basically like how to write poetry. Oh. Um, he's a very, very smart dude. Interesting. Very readable, very accessible. I picked it up because on the cover it says the Greek myths reimagined, and we know that I love Greek mythology. Mm-hmm. So that's why I picked that one up. Um, so I'm excited about that. And then I was walking out. I was like, okay, I got these two books. I'm walking to the front desk, and that's how they get you. I'm telling yeah. you. Oh, and yeah. so there were, <laughs> you know how at Barnes Noble they have those tables where it's like, buy one get one 50 percent off well okay i saw this book it's called the house on the cerulean sea by tj clune and i've heard such great things about this book it's it's about um this social worker who goes to some place that's like way out in the boonies to check on these kids and they're magical kids but they're like very dangerous magical kids so this guy has to go and um, like write a report on them. And he ends up falling in love with, I don't know if that's a spoiler. I mean, I know it and I haven't read the book. So he ends up falling in love with the guy who's taking care of the children. And I just heard that it's a really warm and fuzzy book. And so I was like, well, I, I got to get this book. So I might as well pick up another book. <laughs> So, you got to stock up for the summer, right? Of course. <laughs> so I've heard great things about this book as well called A Song of Wraiths and Ruin by Roseanne A. Brown. And I have no freaking idea what this book is about. Um, I believe it's like a fantasy novel. I'll read the back of it, as I always do. Okay. For Malik, the Solstasia Festival is a chance to escape his war-stricken home and start a new life with his sisters in the prosperous desert city of Zeron. But when a vengeful spirit abducts his younger sister, Nadia, as payment to enter the city, Malik strikes a fatal deal, kill Karina, crown princess of Zeron, in exchange for Nadia's freedom. Yeah, I won't read the rest of it, because it's kind of long. But that sounds interesting. Yeah, that's a great name. That's a great title. Yeah. That's my book haul. <laughs> it's dangerous going into Barnes and Noble. We have we unfortunately don't have books or Barnes and Noble. We have Books a Million, who oh. is very liberal with their teacher discount. Mm. <laughs> or as Barnes and Noble, it's like it has to be something you're using for you're obviously using for your classroom. Mm-hmm. And in Books a Million, they're like buy whatever you want. It's twenty percent off. So <laughs> I'm like, well, how can I not? That's so cool. Yeah, I have a membership to Barnes & Noble, so I get a percentage off. So I'm mm-hmm. like, well, might as well just buy another book. Right, exactly, exactly. That's how, I, that's how I'd, I've ended up buying more like new books in recent years because there's always that discount that everybody gets and then the member's discount and then the educator discount. So a lot of stuff mm-hmm. ends up being like 50% off mm-hmm. when it comes out. So 
But again, I'm trying to I'm trying to buy more digital books now, especially with the Kindle. That mm-hmm. just means I'm buying just as many books just in digital form. And they're less money than they are in print. Typically, yeah. Yeah, yeah typically. Well, cool. Well, what, successful book haul, successful Prime Day. Yes. What did you finish reading? Did you finish reading anything this week? I did. I finished reading Just Us, which we I introduced last time, Claudia Rankin. Um, and to recap, this, the book is an assembly of poems and documents and photographs and photo essays, uh, and mainly it, it's actual essays. I don't know how I feel about this one. I really enjoyed it. I would recommend reading it, but I, I, still, I still maintain you should read the entire trilogy that mm-hmm. she has assembled. I don't think reading this one first um, is best. If anything, read the second one, uh, Citizen, because the first one is so, it's from 2004 and, and the politics are a little out of, out of date. But, but it, it presents itself as she's, she's questioning strangers the book is she's questioning strangers about white privilege and recording their subsequent responses and including that in the book. And to me, that sounds fascinating, which is why I picked it up. I would have picked it up anyway because of her name. But it's not much of the book. Like a lot of the book is her thinking about asking strangers questions and then being like, eh, a little too nervous and, and then moving, moving on from it. Uh, and also the fact that it's, it's, it's typically just essays. Um, now you have photographs and you have notes on the left side Mm -hmm. of the entire book and you have the, you have the text on the other side. Um, but it's not as much of a genre blender as the book makes it, makes it out to be. I'm sure you've, I'm sure you've read books before too, where you expect one thing and it's like, Mm -hmm. nah, this was marketed slightly differently (laughs) than, than what it actually is. So knowing, knowing what it is, I think is helpful. Um, so, so like the, the harshest examples of, of misbehavior of things that she wants to question, she, she doesn't really question them. So for example, like a, a large chunk of the book is her at the airport mm-hmm. um, and how she's often like, you know, white businessmen will just directly step in front of her mm-hmm. um, and and then get you know offended when she says like hey i'm actually i'm actually in line here and there's an example where where a man does this and then his wife comes up it's this rich couple and he's he the wife comes up and she's like running late and he's like what are you dumb what are you stupid and like everybody has this reaction of like should we say something like what's going what's going mm-hmm. on here um, and somebody finally does, and he kind of mouths off to this person, and that person is at the end of the flight is like taken off first for a medical issue. Mm-hmm. So there's all these interesting things going on, but she never questions him. So you get the cool like internal like why am I not wanting to question this person? Why is this going on? Like mm-hmm. what are all these factors that's going into this behavior? But the fact that the book is being sold on like I'm gonna you know get in people's faces and ask them about these things, mm-hmm. eh, she doesn't she doesn't really do that um and she fact checks herself she expands upon her sources on the left side of the page there's some there's some standouts there so for example like she'll use other text to bolster what she's talking about so she uses um she uses the 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 script of of a keynote presentation from 1981 that audrey lord gave uh, where she says quote guilt and defensiveness are bricks in a wall against which we all perish for they serve none of our futures. And that gels nicely with some of the stories. So she, this will probably be the, the last like, major thing I'll talk about with this. She attends a play with a friend, with a white mm-hmm. friend. And at the end of the play, th- the audience is asked to split based on race. Oh boy. So if you're, yeah, so if you are, if you are black, I want you to come up onto the stage. If you're white, I want you to stay in the audience. And the people in the play do this too. They split on race lines and the play ends with them looking at each other. And it's, it's, it's cool because there's no, they don't tell you what the actual intention is. The playwright doesn't tell you what the actual intention of this is. So she's, she kind of walks through like, what, what is going on here? What are we being forced to look at? Are we being forced to, to acknowledge each other's humanity? Are we being forced to think about like, Okay, well, what's the difference now that the the black members of the audience are elevated and the mm-hmm. white members are not? And there's a there's a guy behind her that's like, oh, this is effed up, white guy. But he still he still gets up. Mm-hmm. Um, so then what? 
What happens though is that her, her white friend doesn't move. Like her white friend just stays quiet uh, and stays there the whole time. And it kind of drives a wedge because they don't, <laughs> they then don't talk about it to each other. Mm-hmm. But eventually like they start writing back and forth and, and, and the white friend talks about like, I don't, and I didn't, I didn't realize this at the time, but I became very, very uncomfortable being told to, being asked to feel shame or guilt as a white person, mm-hmm. which was interesting because, because of the play, you question like, is that what the play is asking though? Like mm-hmm. it's very, it's very open-ended. So that's probably one of the, the breakout portions of the book is this, you're, you're, starting to dip down into your own identity into interracial identity and questioning like how what are the unspoken things you do as mm-hmm. you go throughout the world what are things that are actually happening as opposed to things that you think are happening um, so there are some really really cool things here uh, there's also like she does an entire segment on like the blonde hair ideal mm-hmm which is interesting, but it was like one of the longest chapters in the book and was followed up by uh, skin whitening, which was equally, if not more fascinating. And it was about three pages long. Mm-hmm. So the book does seem a little out of balance. Some things over, overstay their welcome and, and, and some things aren't staying there long enough, at least for me. Still recommend reading it. It's really, really cool. Um, I will say there's probably my favorite part there's a section of transcripts of, of white people calling 911 on black people who were just you know going about their day which is mm-hmm. something that we still see in the news and in the middle of one of those transcripts you turn the page and there's there's a full uh there's a full photograph takes up the entire page of of miles davis with the police and he's covered He's in, he's in a full suit and he's covered in blood. Mm. Uh, and it was just kind of this like breathtaking moment for me because I knew what the origin of that photograph was. And she doesn't explain it, which I thought was interesting because the book is all about what are the subtleties that come to the surface, whereas this was a case of actual overt racism. Miles was playing a show. He was headlining a show and he took one of the one of the the white singers out to her car and then he smoked a cigarette for a couple minutes and a cop was like get out of here move on you're loitering and you know miles is very in your face so he he questioned this and then the cop beat him and that's where the blood came from Uh, so there's things like that in there where like i had a visceral reaction of like who okay like that connection between the past and the present was really cool was really interesting so I still recommend it. Start with her other books first, but I still recommend it. Okay. What would you... Uh, I, I don't know. I'll, I guess I'll ask you what your star rating is for it. This is one of those books I think I struggle with the star ratings. I feel like mm-hmm. the star ratings are set up a little bit better for books that are entertaining and not that this one was, yeah. wasn't entertaining. So probably a four. I might soften it to a three. Okay. I looked back. I gave her other books four. Um, yeah, it's a lot to think on, which is good. I guess that's, that's the point of it. Even with the critiques that I have, it's, it's a lot to think about. And that's what you want from a book like this is to kind of mull these concepts over. Yeah, that makes sense. I'll have to pick that one up. That one sounds interesting. Um, it's cool. It's worth a read. It's well worth a read and maybe returning to it's quick too. So yeah, yeah. I'll definitely have to put that on my TBR. That is like 200 books long at this point. (laughs) (laughs) I read it in two sittings. So it is very, it's, I mean, it's long because it's, it's glossy pages and the text is mainly on the right side, but it, it's a breeze to, to get through. Okay. That's good. That's all I finished. What did, what did you finish? Well, I finished the X talk by Rachel Lynn Solomon. Which ah, is yes. not, um, not as scholarly a book as your book was. <laughs> um, we'll get to the non-scholarly in a couple minutes. Yeah. Don't worry. <laughs> it is well if you haven't heard me talk about this on the podcast for the past two times because I've been reading it for a while. It is about two characters who work at an NPR station on the West Coast. So Shay 
and Dominic are the main characters in the book. Shay is a producer who's been working on this really boring show called Puget Sounds for 10 years. And Dominic has been working at the station for four months. And he's like, he wants to be a journalist. Like he wants to do all these like really important pieces and all this stuff. Shay finds him really annoying because he constantly talks about the fact that he has a master's degree in journalism from Northwestern. And so they kind of have this feud over that. Um, But then Puget Sounds, the show that Shay is working on, gets canceled because it's a very boring show. And they have to come up with a new show idea slash podcast. It's a live radio show that's also turned into a podcast. And Shay has an idea for uh, a show about hosted by two exes and they talk about why their relationship went wrong and they have like um experts in the dating field on the show and all this stuff and so somehow shay gets tapped to host the show and then also dominic gets tapped to host the show even though these two have never dated before So they have to, like, keep this secret from the rest of the world. And the show gets very pop um, around the world. Like, people in India are listening to it. People in, like, other countries are listening to it as well. And, And, I don't know, they have to, like, just go around keeping this huge secret from the rest of the world. And that's, like, a source of guilt, especially for Shay. And Dominic, too, because he's all about journalistic integrity and all of this stuff. Um, but yeah, so they, I mean, it's a contemporary romance novel, so you kind of, you know how it's going to end. Um, yeah. But I, you know, I give it a three out of five stars. It wasn't my favorite. Like, it was okay. It was well written. I liked Dominic. I really hated Shay. She was really annoying. Like, she had this whole hang-up, because she was a producer for the radio station for 10 years, and she has, like, this hang-up about she hates her voice and she doesn't think her voice sounds good, which I understand. Um, But she keeps bringing it up, and everyone tells her that her voice sounds fine, sounds good. And it's even, like, people who don't have to tell her that her voice sounds good. Like, there are people who, like, aren't her friends or family or anything that are saying that she sounds fine but she keeps bringing it up (laughs) and like she's insecure about other things about herself which is like fine like i'm also insecure about stuff so like i get it but she's like 29 and i hope that by the time i'm 29 like i'll be over most of my insecurities you know what i mean i don't know and she just keeps bringing it up and it's really annoying and i and i just yeah i didn't like it um that much (laughs) and people keep saying that the ending is very unsatisfactory but i don't really get that like i thought it was i thought it was a good ending so Hmm. yeah i'll give it a three out of five no comment on whether you'll get over insecurities by 29 (laughs) yeah (laughs) i wonder does she not does the writer not pull off the because a lot of times when you see those types of insecurities and i think emily henry did this pretty well it it, it's very integral to the conclusion of the story so kind of like getting over some of those insecurities or and it's the it's the connection to this other person that does that does she maybe not pull that off and it just comes off as like whiny Exactly, exactly. It's just whiny. It doesn't really have to do anything with the story at all. Yeah, she's just whiny. Lovely, lovely. (laughs) Yeah. So, yeah, that's all I finished reading this week. Okay. What are you currently reading? (laughs) All right. I said I was going to get to lighter things, and I promise this is lighter. (laughs) Although, don't, 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 don't change that. uh, Don't touch that dial, ladies and gentlemen. I started (laughs) War and Peace. Started War and Peace. And I am 14% of the way through War and Peace by Leo Tolstoy, in case you needed to know that. Um, So I had been putting this one off and not realizing it. Um, Part of it was I went down a rabbit hole, which I'll I'll get to in a couple minutes. Uh, And part of it was I was was working this week and lost track of time. So I ended up having to read about 100 pages in two days. Oh, wow. 
it's War and Peace, so I was dreading it. I was like, man, this is going to take me the entire day. Mm-hmm. Um, and it didn't. Um, now, this is, this is partly due to the translation, I believe. Um, Anthony Briggs is the person who translated this. It's from 2006. It is extremely accessible and extremely modernized. I haven't gotten there yet, but I, I, I hear the F word comes into play a couple mm-hmm. times. Like, it's that modernized. Um, to the point where like he's including like Cockney accents with certain people to show you like here's here's kind of the class breakdown of what's going on here. But of course, they wouldn't speak with the Russian. They wouldn't speak with a Cockney accent. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's very it's very helpful. Uh, and my understanding to my friend that I'm who I'm reading this with, he started with a different translation while he waited for this one to arrive. Mm-hmm. And that translation was difficult because the characters so often will speak in French, um, depending on how, you know, high sounding they want to they want to come off as. Wait, the and Russian characters will speak in French? The Russian characters will speak in French. Translations yes. are wild, man. I don't know. Yes. <laughs> Yeah. Well, this is original. This is original to um, Tolstoy. Okay. His characters would speak in French, particularly when they wanted to. Like you started a very high class, bougie mm-hmm. party. Uh, and those characters are constantly speaking in French to show that, hey, like we're we're high class people. Mm-hmm. And you do have to keep in mind, too, like Napoleon hasn't invaded. Spoiler alert for history. <laughs> Napoleon hasn't yet invaded Russia. Um, so so it's a it's a little bit different there and that french starts to drop off as you know the conflict arises but in that original translation i would say like it's the first chapter is difficult because a lot of characters are thrown at you mm-hmm. and then it's kind of a breeze after that first chapter because you start to just follow single characters at a time but it kind of sets up everybody to start but with that translation they don't translate the French. The French is there in one big block. And then in the footnotes, they give the translation of the French. Okay. So as a reader, you have to do a lot of the legwork, whereas Briggs will just say, they're speaking in French, and then <laughs> move on with it, which is great, which is super helpful. So um, I'm so, assuming uh, that the French is actually not important to the story at all. It's, in, it's important that they're speaking it, but it's not important to read it in French. <laughs> oh, okay. So he's translating the French into English. I thought you He translates the French into they're English. They're speaking in French and then moves on. <laughs> oh, no, 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 no. He'll, it'll be like, blah, 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 he said in French. Blah, okay. blah, 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 blah. So you do, get the, you do get the text from it, but you don't have to wade through. Like, okay, like here, here is actual French, and now I need to go find. Uh, now they're making me do the work to, to figure this out. Yeah. I believe in the original, it wasn't translated. Tolstoy just kind of expected you to, to know the French, which wow. uh, it probably worked at the time period, but it doesn't anymore. Mm-hmm. So I've joked about how this is, this is light summer reading, but it kind of feels like it is. I feel like the biggest hurdle to War and Peace seems to me to be its length, its absurd length. Because mm-hmm. um, other than that, it's, I mean, it is very, very engaging. It's not heavy on philosophy either, like, like Dostoevsky would be heavy on philosophy. Um, it's a lot of action. It's funny. There's genuinely fun. There's a couple moments where I've laughed out loud, which does not happen very often, even when things are, are funny. Um, so that combination is pretty cool. Um, there's, you know, there's, there's a group of soldiers, once the war gets started, who are discussing the afterlife one character is like going to get the soldiers and he overhears them and they're like, well, I wouldn't be so damn scared of going to war if I knew what happened afterwards, but I'm pretty <laughs> sure nothing happens. Everything that's up, up, up there is just atmosphere. There's no heaven. And then the character comes in and they're like, all right, back to battle. <laughs> like that's like the extent of the philosophy there. It's almost, I'm sure he wasn't, but it's almost like he was like, it's not going to be one of those books. Okay. You're going to be entertained by, you're going to be entertained by this book. Um, and then there's there's a party scene at the beginning where there's there's this kid Pierre, um, and his older older stepbrother is like, hey, stop stop hanging out with the people that you're hanging out with because they're no good. And he's like, all right, you got it. I gotta take life seriously. And then leaves and is like, I'm gonna go to this party. <laughs> <laughs> and the party's description is insane. Um, he he starts by like going up to this room. And there's this challenge. Somebody took a bet of I can sit on the window ledge um, and chug an entire bottle of rum and then stand up and come back into the house. (laughs) And it's like a two, three, four uh, drop. 
and they like punch the window frame out and rip it apart. And this guy goes and, and the description of him standing on the window ledge is like, it's just enough to sit on, but it's tilted downwards and he uh. chugs the rum and stumbles back into the room. And then they, there's a bear. They've like captured a bear. And it's, <laughs> it's in the house. And, and so after, after the scene, it, it, it cuts to the, the kid's family and they're, they're pissed at him because he gets arrested. And they're like, what do you get arrested for? And they're like, well, a cop showed up and they grabbed the cop and they tied the bear to the cop and threw it in a pool. <laughs> oh my God. You yeah. know, when you said that you were reading War and Peace, I, I had no idea what that book was about. And I just thought it was going to be like something dry and boring, but no, that, no. that is not what I was expecting to hear yeah. about that book. <laughs> it's, I mean, I expected it to be drier than it is. It's not dry at, at all. It really isn't. And especially with the, with that translation again, like a character would just randomly be like, you son of a bitch. And I'm like, <laughs> is this actual the time period? But it works. It works very well. Mm-hmm. He's great at conveying what is being said. Um, to, to modern audiences so check it out it's a great the chapters are very short so i imagine like it's really a book you could keep by your bedside and just read a chapter or two every night and yeah. you'll get through it eventually but keep in mind it was serialized yeah it would take a while it would definitely take a while um but it was serialized so it's not like he set out to be like putting a 1300 page book on the shelves mm-hmm. like people were reading it in installments like like dickens so yeah. We tend to forget that because they're so old. Mm-hmm. So check it out. It's great. What have you been reading? Um, so the book that I'm reading right now is God's Behaving Badly by Marie Phillips. And it is so uh, yeah. freaking hilarious. Have you read this <laughs> book before? I have not, but I want to. It is so funny. I, I'm not that far into it. Let me see how, how far into it I am. Um, I'm on page 30. So yeah, I definitely need to keep going with that but so basically the premise of the story is that it's about the greek gods who are now living in present day london and i don't know why yet but for some reason their power is like limited and that once they run out of power um no one knows what's going to happen to them will they die (laughs) who knows But yeah, so Athena, the goddess of wisdom, she's like trying to figure out how to get their power back. But the rest of the gods are just kind of like hanging out. They're all in this like rinky-dink little uh, house. And like they don't have hot water and like everything's cramped. There's like one bathroom for however many of them there are a lot. Um, (laughs) But I think it's hilarious because like, They've had to get real jobs. So Aphrodite is a phone sex operator, which I think is freaking hilarious. And That's then, so perfect. And then Apollo, who's the goddess or the god of the sun, he is a TV psychic, and he's just about to go on stage right now at the at the time that I stopped. So, um, and I think Aphrodite's gonna play a little bit of a prank on him. I uh, don't know what that's going to be, but I'm excited for it. And then there's like two other characters. I forget their names. What are their names? Um, I met them one time. Alice and Neil. I don't know how they play into the story yet, but they're there. And I kind of just wanted to read like the first few paragraphs because this is so freaking funny. So <laughs> this is the, well, maybe like the first page and a half. I'll read the first page and a half. One morning, when Artemis was out walking the dogs, she saw a tree where no tree should be. The tree was standing alone in a sheltered part of the slope. To the untrained eye, the casual passerby, it probably just looked like a normal tree. But Artemis's eye was far from untrained, and she ran through this part of Hampstead Heath every day. This tree was a newcomer, it had not been there yesterday. And with one, just one glance, Artemis recognized that it was an entirely new species, a type of eucalyptus that had not existed yesterday. It was a tree that should not exist at all. Dragging the mutts behind her, Artemis made her way over to the tree. She touched its bark and felt its breathing. She pressed her ear against the trunk of the tree and listened to its heartbeat. Then she looked around. Good. It was early, and there was nobody within earshot. She reminded herself not to get angry with the tree, that it wasn't the tree's fault. Then she spoke. (laughs) Hello, she said. There was a long silence. Hello, 
Artemis said again. Are you talking to me? said the tree. It had a faint Australian accent. Yes, said Artemis. I'm Artemis. If the tree experienced any recognition, it didn't show it. I'm the goddess of hunting and chastity, said Artemis. Another silence. Then the tree said, I'm Kate. I work in mergers and acquisitions for Goldman Sachs. (laughs) (laughs) I thought that was funny. I laughed out loud when I read that. Yeah. And yeah, I think that sounds a bit, um, it sounds a bit like Douglas Adams writing. Have you ever read Hitchhiker's Mm -hmm. Guide to the Galaxy? No, I haven't. It sounds a little bit like that. Yeah, that's a funny book too. I'm I'm definitely going to check that one out. That sounds superb. Superb. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what are you reading? Um, I, oh man. Okay. So I went down a rabbit hole this week, which ends in me pirating some books. So I'll get there. It's, it's ethically okay. And I'll okay. explain why in a moment. Um, as you can probably surmise at, the, at this point, um, I'm pretty obsessive about certain things and, and, and to, to part of that's because of actual, actual OCD. So I picked up this book a long time ago called Black Superheroes Milestone Comics and Their Fans by Jeffrey A. Brown. And I forgot that I had it. And then I was in the comic book store and I realized that uh, DC Comics was restarting the Milestone line of comics from the 90s. And I thought, oh, I should read those, but I should also read up on the entire history of Milestone Comics and read some of the old Milestone Comics because I have this book. So the book is odd. It's very odd. Uh, so milestone comics in, in short, because I haven't read too much of this, so I'll talk about it more later, um, was it was created in 1993 as an alternative to, not even an alternative, it, it was made to show representation of comics fans in comic books. Comic mm-hmm. books at the time in the early 90s were very much uh, a white adolescent often prepubescent boys game that's who it was targeted towards that's uh that's what you saw in the heroes um and some of it was just blatantly like sexist and Mm -hmm. and, like there were there were some problems there so this company milestone comics entirely black owned company what they wanted to do is they wanted to create comics that would be more reflective of the country as it is Unfortunately, part of what read, led to their downfall is they just ended up being viewed as, oh, that's comics for black people. And mm-hmm. a lot of the shops, like your shops or the, the gatekeepers, wouldn't stock them as much because they were like, oh, no, it's not for my customer base, which wasn't true. They weren't comics for black people. They, all of the comics represented a wide range of people. The goal was to show hey, these are actual people that are in these costumes. So half the time you don't see like the costume side of the superhero. You see like Static is one of the main characters. He's like the Peter Parker type. Like you see him dealing with issues in his school. Uh, and then the superhero stuff is kind of added on top of it. But I mean, you have a wide, wide you have interracial relationships. And in one of the, the team up ones, like you have a trans character who's who's portrayed positively. This is 1993. So it's really cool stuff that they were doing. Unfortunately, like people just didn't. They were trailblazers, but they were victims of the comics industry crashing and also oh. just like being misunderstood. So why it's fascinating. Did the, why did the industry crash? Ooh, that's a long topic. But in oh. short, um, the speculator market was part of that. Okay. <laughs> um, meaning like when, so for example, and there's a lot that goes into this, but I'll, I'll simplify. Um, when the death of Superman came out, it was a big deal. And everybody bought copies of the death of Superman, people who didn't buy comic books. So this mm-hmm. investor market sprung up uh, and the news would report on this, like this mom bought 40, 40 copies of the death of Superman, knowing that she'll be able to sell them one day and pay for her kid's college. Mm-hmm. You could easily go find a copy of death of Superman for mm-hmm. very, uh, very inexpensive, um, even sealed in the little poly bag that it came into because they overproduced. Mm-hmm. Um, if you go on eBay and you, and you try to find some old, old comics, even the ones that were like all these gimmicky, like special edition, like first, first issue They've been sitting in warehouse for warehouses for decades because they overproduced, which means they were spending more money than they were bringing in, which means it just collapsed the entire market. That was one of the the major factors that factored into it. So one issue caused the whole collapse of the whole industry. 
No, there's there's a lot of factors that went into it, but that issue did spur on a huge speculator market. Okay. Um, and there's a speculator market now too, but the comics industry is much smaller than it used to be. It used mm-hmm. to be big, big money, um, but the bottom just dropped out of it. They also didn't, again, that like with Milestone, they didn't cater to people who actually read comics. They They very narrowly defined it you know they didn't market to females uh just like the video game industry in america chose not to market to (laughs) towards females Mm -hmm. um and and that contributed to the to the crash as well you can only market to prebubescent boys for so long because they're going to grow up Mm -hmm. (laughs) like and it's a kid's industry but i think what you see now in comics is no like this the adult readership is huge and not just from a nostalgia standpoint like there are books by adults being written for adults mm-hmm. with very adult themes so um yeah it's it, it's interesting to see how it collapsed because there's a ton of there's a ton of things that went into it but that was a major major part of it and there's currently a speculator market because i was like well, let me read some of these old i'll go on ebay and, and buy some of these old um milestone comics because they're not on comiXology they haven't been digitized and then it's the same old story. Oh, the first issue is like 50 bucks. I know this isn't worth 50 bucks. I know they made a lot more copies of this, but I can't get a hold of any of these things mm-hmm. and they have not been reprinted. Um, it is unbelievable. I didn't realize this. I searched for maybe somebody digitized it and put it on the internet, which would be technically piracy, but I can't give, I can't give the creators my money. You know, I can't give I can't give DC Comics, who was the overseer of Milestone, the distributors of Milestone, uh, my money because they're not reprinting these things. So to me, I was like, that's fine. I'll just find a digital copy. Mm-hmm. Within two seconds, I found five websites, first first hits on Google, where like all of the comics that came out last week are available on the front page. You can click on them and read them. Oh wow, which is insane to me that how this is allowed to be so prevalent and and easy to find so that allowed me to find the entire old milestone line digitized Mm -hmm. nicely digitized um so i've I've started to burn through burn through that okay interesting but that's where i'm standing right now is i'm 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 burning through some of the now that i have the new kindle um it's beautiful it's beautiful to just flip through those old comics um, but don't don't mistake me. I don't think it's ethical to steal comics that you can go purchase easily, digitally, or on the shelves. But if you can't find them anywhere else and you can't give the creators the money, eh, what are you gonna do? Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. So. It's research. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, that makes sense. Okay. Well, also today we're gonna talk about books that we've outgrown. So I will go first. So I think that I've outgrown a specific genre, a specific trope within a genre. So I think anything young adult dystopian, I (laughs) cannot do that anymore. Well, also because like I'm getting, I'm getting older. So like young adult as a genre, not too interested in it anymore. I read a lot of young adult um like the hunger games like divergent the fifth wave those books when i was in middle school and like early high school and i think that i really burned myself out on them and i think that like i don't know the whole you you fall in love with the person that you're saving the world with when you're like 16 years old i'm like yeah no no, like your first love probably won't. Well, it lasts for some people, but for most people, I don't think that your first love lasts. So I think like that trope also within um, the young adult category, I've also outgrown that. Yeah. What about you? Also might be kind of a dangerous trope. You know, it's kind of like the romantic comedy of like, are these realistic expectations to set for teenagers? <laughs> like, and some yeah. of them, like, I mean, I'm just thinking back to like, um twilight where you know bella swan is in love with edward but edward's such a toxic character and it's kind of like um 
just just purporting to young people that being in a toxic relationship is okay and it's not like <laughs> no it's not okay for a guy to treat you terribly like that yeah be creepy yeah you know so yeah and it's i mean it's easy to to me it sounds like it would be easier to just write the story as this is a toxic relationship we're going to explore that and then they're not going to end up together <laughs> like you know what I mean? It's like the Joker Harley Quinn thing. Like we're not celebrating this. He's abusive. He's clearly abusive, and she will break free of free of this. But it doesn't happen with those types of books. Yeah, so that, that's my thought on that. What What did you outgrow? So there was not a young adult um, industry the way it is today when I was a kid. Um, I went from I went from Goosebumps to to Stephen King. Because there, were, I mean, there was teen fiction in between, but it sucked. It was awful. Um, it was very, very bad, and very catering to like, hey, teens, here's the <laughs> here's your new favorite book. Um, so I missed out on all that. But like you, what I was reading as a young adult, I've kind of outgrown, um, and that's that that is horror fiction. Like Steve, Stephen King was, I was a big influence, and I read a ton of Stephen King, and that I have not. I reread and finished the Dark Tower series, which is kind of his magnum opus, connects like his entire universe together. Maybe five, ten years ago, and I haven't touched a Stephen King book since. I almost picked one up the other day, and then I was like, nah, nah, I'm good. I can, I can, I can do without it. Uh, so I've definitely outgrown that. Um, and I don't know, maybe that's getting older and just not being fascinated with, you know, death and, and, and violence. But a lot of it is like, I don't know. I don't think he's written some truly stellar things. The Shining is one of my favorite books of all time. But being that he's written, okay, he's probably written 70 novels at this point. So much of it is just like, oh, uh, where'd you like, I think he just dug this out of a trunk and dusted it off and then, and then published it. Whereas it, when I was a kid, I, I noticed I would just read whatever certain authors put out, even if it sucked and, and just be like, great, that was good. And that was fine with it. Uh, like Terry Brooks, um, who wrote the Shannara or Shannara series. It's a series of fantasy novels, which I, I loved as a kid. And then eventually I was like, this is just Lord of the Rings. Like it's straight up Lord of the Rings. And it's not, it's not written very well, which Stephen King kind of pointed out to me. He has a famous quote from his book on writing, which is a really good book um, called the, the road, to, the road to hell is paved with adjectives. And once that was pointed out to me, I noticed that constantly, like every page in a Terry Brooks novel is, he whispered softly. Like, how the hell else was he going to whisper? Like, it's just, he ran quickly. Like, oh, your books are long enough as it is. And it was such a, like, eyesore to me that I was like, I, just, I can't, I can't do it anymore. It's so derivative and it's very, like, and I, I didn't use that term at the time, but I was like, I know Lord of the Rings very well. This is the exact same story just not written very well so so i outgrew i outgrew that one i'm scared to reread harry potter for the same reason i feel like i maybe outgrew harry potter i wasn't huge on harry potter to begin with but i really enjoyed it so i kind of want to just keep that as it is yeah i wonder the same thing and you know i don't know i have issues like supporting harry potter now that you know, J.K. Rowling has come out and said all these transphobic things. Like, I don't want to yeah. give her any more of my money. Um, right. So I, I mean, yeah, I enjoyed Harry Potter. Like, I did the, you know, take take your take the quiz to figure out which house you're in. I'm a Slytherin. Yeah. If anyone wants, I was Hufflepuff. I was Hufflepuff. I can see that. I can see that. Yeah. yeah. Um. Yeah. But yeah, I don't. I don't think I'll ever reread that series. I think it's just something that I enjoyed when when I was naive about her and what she believes. Yeah, yeah. And this this might be an interesting uh, discussion topic for another episode. And this came up in the in the Discord the other day of like separating out the art from the artist, which is something I talk to my wife about constantly because I feel like. Just as a society in general, we have the artists that we're, we can look past horrible things. And then we have the artists that we can't look past the horrible things. And it's like, well, why can you do it with this one and not, not the other one? For Rowling, at least having not reread it, 
I feel like I can separate the art from the artist with the main series of Harry Potter, but I'm not going to I'm not going to buy anything new that she's putting out. I'm not going to read anything new that she's putting out, especially cuz she's kind of digging her heels with it, but mm-hmm. yeah. You know. Yeah. And also kind of going back to what you said about horror. I cannot read horror to save my life. I I hate horror movies. I I don't watch too many movies in general, but horror movies, oh my god, they suck. And I'm just like, (laughs) I think the world is scary enough as it is, (laughs) and I don't need to read about horrible things that happen to people fictionally, because bad things happen in real life all the time. So I'm like, no, I'd rather read a contemporary romance novel. Oh, and I found like a couple weeks ago, I really enjoy horror um, graphic novels. Because I feel like a lot of times, especially if you have a really gory story and it's just prose, your own mind has to interpret that. And it's probably going to be horrible. Whereas, you know, you could present things in a more cartoony manner where it's like, yeah, it's gross. You know, there's evisceration here, but you can easily separate like, okay, this is a piece of art work. Okay. <laughs> like I'm, I'm a little bit removed from, from what's going on here. Um, and I, I think maybe that's it. I've just... I, there's not much there is to say. Or I watched so many. I stopped watching horror movies a long, long time ago because I was like, I watched so many movies that like every movie's a trope mm. at this point to me. Um, I hardly ever watch a horror movie. If I do, it's probably Dawn of the Dead, just because it's my favorite movie. But yeah. Well, our last segment that we have to talk about is we had a request come in. Um, someone is looking for fantasy novels that they can read. And if you want us to recommend you a book, send me an email to themarkliteraryreview at gmail.com or send me a DM on Twitter at literarymark and we will find you something to read. And this is my wheelhouse. I love it. Yeah, way more than me. <laughs> yeah, so I I had a few ideas in mind. I was gonna recommend the city we became for this one but i feel like i've talked about it so much on this podcast already but like if you haven't read the city we became what are you doing go read (laughs) oh my gosh it's fantastic um and you can probably listen to every single episode and hear me talk about it so i'm just gonna shut up about it just go read it um we are the the nk jemison sun Ra podcast (laughs) yes um but yeah for this one i wanted to recommend um the a court of thorns and roses series by sarah j mass because that's one of my favorite um one of my favorite fantasy series and i i read it i think i must have been 14 or 15 the first time i read it and i recently reread it because there was a new book that was coming out did I read the new book? No. I have a very bad habit of like rereading a series for the new book and then not reading the new book. That's yeah. but that's another story. So basically in the A Court of Thorns and Roses series, there's this girl named Feyre, and she is living in poverty with her two sisters and her dad, and she has to go out and hunt for um their food. And it's the middle of winter, and it's very, like, Hunger Games at the beginning of it. Like, she has a bow and arrow, and she goes out, and she hunts. And she finds this wolf, or maybe it's, like, a wolf-like creature, and she shoots it. And then um, the the wolf ends up being a fae character, like a fairy character. And then she's kind of like picked out as like the chosen one. And then the the fae come and take her to their fairy lands. And I won't say like too much about the plot because like I think I'll spoil it. But um, basically she um, becomes like a pawn in this plan to save the fairy world. And something that I really enjoyed about it was that there are two love interests. One of them is very toxic and one of them is not. Mm. And like we were talking about before with Twilight, I feel like this series does a really good job of showing 
how a relationship can be toxic and kind of like how you can get out of it. Like it's not something that you need to be stuck with your whole mm-hmm. life. Like there there are good guys out there that you can find. So I think that's one of the the qualities that I really liked about the series. And yeah, it really it really holds up, I guess is what I'm trying to say because I read it when I was younger and I recently re- reread it like a year ago. Um and I'm 23 now. So I think that um it's not a book that I loved in my youth and just in my youth, but I think that it's is something that I will continue to love going forward. Right. right. Cool. And I've had that book recommended to me before as well. So it's definitely it's out there in the consciousness. Mhm. Really good. Excellent. Cool. Do you have any other recommendations? Well, I was going to recommend also the An Ember in the Ashes series of by Sawa Tahir. And that's basically about this girl named Laya who infiltrates a military camp. Um, and she's she's part of like a minority group that is um they're called the Scholars, and she infiltrates a military camp of these people who have been oppressing the scholars for thousands of years and she ends up falling in love with um someone who is very powerful in that um like oppressive community and they work together to kind of take down that community and that's that's another thing where <laughs> i the last book came out in november last november and i reread the first 3 books but I didn't read the fourth book. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but that's really good series as well. That's something that I read when I was 14, 15, and I recently reread it and I still like it. Mm-hmm. That's a mark of a great book. Mm-hmm. Mark of a great book. I um, don't read a lot of fantasy. I did as a kid, but then I kind of burned out after Lord of the Rings and all that stuff because um, that was coming out as I was, as I was younger. Um, but there, one of my favorite books is a fantasy book. It's called Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norell by Susanna Clark. Have you read this one or know anything about this one? I haven't read it. I don't know anything about it. Ah, uh, you should check this one out. Now this is going to sound familiar and I didn't realize it until this morning because I, I haven't read it since 2010 or 11. Uh, so I'd forgotten quite a bit of the plot. Um, but this is, this is an alternate history set in britain where there have been magicians for ages but they have turned basically into uh academics and as they've as they've written down their stories and as they've written down their their spells and their abilities they've lost the ability to use them so like the magicians don't really exist anymore in britain enter uh jonathan no sorry enter mr norell who is studying these old books and starting to get his powers back. Because he's getting his powers back, and because uh, Napoleon is invading Britain, <laughs> he, uh, he goes to the military and is basically like, I, I can help you out. And he sets up like decoys. So um, one of the things that he does is he sets up these rain ships. So when Napoleon's coming in, he thinks he's grossly outnumbered by Britain's ships because he can see them in the distance, but they're not actually there. They're just illusions, which is interesting. So after he's been at this for a while, enter Jonathan Strange, rival magician who is, who is a little more in your face. Like He wants to use magic to, to win the war in a much more aggressive way. So it's a lot of back and forth between the two of them. It really, fle- she really fleshes out the world and makes you believe like, oh, okay, this is like, you know, a lot of alternate histories are, are like, well, wouldn't it be cool if this happened? You feel like this has actually happened when you read this book. And part of that is, one, the length, I think it's about 800 pages long. It's pretty lengthy. Yeah, but she, she also includes footnotes, like actual, like they sound like academic clarifications and footnotes. Um, stories about the the Raven King. So the Raven King was kind of this ancient uh, king in Britain who was a magician. 
And that's what Jonathan Strange is trying to get back to. He kind of wants the magicians to to take back their to gain their powers back and also to take back the power in Britain because he thinks it would be it would be better off. Um, so you get a lot of those old stories. Some there's a few footnotes that are like <laughs> a page or two long. They're very very long footnotes. Um, yeah, it, it's very much acclaimed. You can see the parallel with War and Peace there, but it's very much acclaimed as it's a long book that by the time you're done with it, you wish it was much longer. And, and that's, that's really true. I remember I had a thrift store copy of this because I was broke and living, living in an alley in Pittsburgh when I, when I was reading this. And I would take this book with me wherever I went. So I'd be in the doctor's office with this big tome of a book, just, just, just spurning through it. Um, I, I could not put this one down despite the length. Um, and if you like it, there's, there's a follow-up called The Ladies of Grace Adieu and Other Stories which are short stories from, from the ancient times, from the Raven King's times that she, she wrote. Susanna Clarke has not written a lot. Um, in fact, she wrote Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norell, the book of short stories, and then I think like 10 years went by before she released another novel. I believe she has another book planned related to Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norell that comes out next year, but there's not much information about it, so don't don't bank on it coming out next year but if you've never read it it's superb i think i have a book by her hold on did she write i have to look this up now did she write piranesi yes yep i have that book i just haven't picked it up yet it's much shorter from what i from what i gather yeah, yeah. it's definitely i think it's like 200 ish pages it's definitely not 800 pages yeah yeah, I think you'd really like Jonathan Strange and, and Mr. Norell, though. Give that one a shot. Sold it to me, I will say. And we we know that I love everything fantasy, so I might bump yeah. that up to the top of the list. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then the only the only other things I could could think of, and I won't I won't go in depth with these, but like Neil Gaiman's The Sandman series, which is a series of of comic books and graphic novels, superb, superb fantasy. Um, and he very much. He's he's great at mixing in different different myths and different uh, different cultures versions of fantasy stories into into one one thing. It's uh, it's tremendously readable. Uh, one of the best series I've ever read. And then there's another one called Monstrous, um, and that is it, I'll read the description really quickly, and then then I can be done with it. Set in an alternate matriarchal 1900s Asia. In a richly imagined world of art deco-inflected steampunk, Monstrous tells the story of a teenage girl who's struggling to survive the trauma of war and who shares a mysterious psychic link with a monster of tremendous power, a connection that will transform them both and make them the target of both human and otherworldly powers. I've said before I don't like the steampunk aesthetic. This is one of those beautiful books I've ever seen art-wise. It's gorgeous. It's like if you took anime and mixed it with... Did you ever see that, um, the mo- not modern, uh, but the last version of The Great Gatsby that they did? No, I haven't seen I actually have not read that book. I was supposed to in my sophomore year of high school, and I just yeah. never read it. Yeah. There's, um, so there's the Leo DiCaprio Great Gatsby. The aesthetic that that movie has, where everything is like kind of tinged in gold and beautiful and overwrought. You imagine that aesthetic mixed with anime? That's kind of what Monstrous is, is like. It's beautiful, beautiful, beautiful artwork. Um, and again, it's one, too, where it follows a teenage girl. It's not necessarily a young adult. Like, a, a young adult, I think, would be enthralled by it, but it's very, uh, it's very adult. It's a story of war, so they don't shy away from, from those things. Yeah, I haven't read Monstrous, but I've heard really good things about it. Um, so that's kind of on my radar. It's, it is a graphic novel, right? It is, and it's through image, uh, and most image volume ones are 10 bucks. So, Cool, cool. I believe that's one of them. Yeah. Well, another book that just popped into my head for this was, um, this person's getting a lot of recommendations. <laughs> um, <laughs> I really liked The Invisible Life of Addie LaRue, which came out last year, and it's by V.E. Schwab. And it's basically about this girl named Addie LaRue, who she is growing up in like, I believe it's 16 or 1700s France. 
And at that time, like all women could really do were, was get married and have kids because, you know, they didn't really have any rights at that point. And right. Addie LaRue has a neighbor who teaches her about gods and like sacrificing things to gods to get, um, you know, something that you're wishing for. So Addie LaRue tries to, or she she's an artist and she takes like her art supplies and like wishes for something and like pushes them into the ground and she's hoping for someone to come and save her from this life like she doesn't want to get married she doesn't want to have kids that's not what she wants out of her life but these gods aren't listening to her they're not helping her at all so her neighbor tells her to never talk to any gods who come out at night and so Addie's getting married at night or like at dusk or whatever and she is like walking to her wedding with her parents but she breaks away and like goes uh into the woods and she doesn't realize that the sun is setting and she's like okay this is my last shot to to get um out of here like a god needs to help me and so the sun sets and a god shows up and it's like a devil character and he's like if you give me your soul I will get you out of this. <clears throat> and <clears throat> kind of how he gets her out of it is he lets her live forever, but people will not remember her. So like she will go, she goes back to her parents' house and she goes in and her parents are like, who are you? We don't know who you are. Get out of here. And then they like turn away from her and when they turn back, it's like they're having the same conversation because they don't realize that they just had this conversation with her. So, and uh, it flips between like 1700s, 1800s, and um, present day in New York City. So, she was growing up in France. I don't know if I mentioned this. But, um, so she gets to the U.S., to New York City, and <clears throat> in 2014... She meets this guy who actually remembers her, and they have a, a relationship. It's it turns into kind of a romance, and then at the end, there's a twist. We well, you kind of see the twist coming, but I kind of thought that like Addie was gonna take back her power in a way, and it kind of gets set up like that. But so I, I was like, okay, there's gonna be another book that comes out and <laughs> it's a freaking standalone novel i i was reading a, an interview that v schwab put out and she's like no it's a standalone novel i was like are you freaking kidding me so it's like a very open-ended ending which like sometimes i like but i wanted more out of it <laughs> yeah you might not like the ending but it is a good book interesting interesting i remember i can't remember the specifics but i know there was an author where it was a similar kind of open-ended and people didn't like the way it ended. And they're like, is this what happened to this character? And he would just be like, sure, I don't care. <laughs> if you want it to be that, that's fine. Yeah, but could you tell us? No. Just, sure, that's what happened. <laughs> so that's what I got for that. Cool. Plenty of recommendations. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. Well. Thanks, everybody, for listening, and we will be back with another episode next week. Have a great week, Internet people. Thank you for tuning into this edition of Lit These Days, presented by the Mark Literary Review. Music was provided by David Mock. We'll be back next week with another episode.